Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and weird stuff. I am half of your host, Hattie James. I am your other half of your host, Ace. Hi, Ace. Hi, Hattie. So um, I wanted to tell you about the, um, the stupid, stupid thing. And I will, I will take credit, but it is both my husband and I to blame for this stupid, stupid thing. Oh, I'm excited. So. Tell me about the stupid thing. We've lived in our current apartment for two years. We yes. moved in actually about two years ago. It was October of two. Yeah, I remember. Because yeah. I remember visiting you in your previous apartment. Mm-hmm. And then I visited you in this apartment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we've been having an issue where we cannot get the apartment cool. And I think we talked about it in a past episode about like the air conditioning issue mm-hmm. and not thinking we had central air, even though there is a central air console, it clearly doesn't work. Well, the central air console, it has a little display. It has two up and down arrows, and then it has a, like, a little, what looks like box thing mm-hmm. underneath, um, just like an outline, like there's an indent in the plastic. Um, so what we've been doing is when it's Like hot, a thermostat? Just, yeah, but, but like, the, that thing, but, like, we press the button to, like, adjust the temperature down. It's always set to, like, 85, de- 84 degrees. Yeah, and but you're, like, like, a lizard. You like heat. Yes, but this is the problem. My- my husband has been accusing me of turning the heat up. I've been accusing the stepbaby of turning the heat up. The stepbaby saying she's not doing it. We've had two years of not being able to get the apartment below 84 degrees, mm-hmm. no matter how much we try. Well, I'm looking at it and I'm messing with it. And then I, that little box I said, I like flicked it and a door, it was a door, a little flap and it went bloop. And it was all these settings and written instructions on like artificial sticker on how to set it. And a so, toggle that said heat, cold. Yeah, well, that was that, over to heat. No, well, that's on the top part. Like that's oh. not in the box. So that's like, this was like a dial that said uh, daytime set. And then it said uh, weekday set and weekend set and then run. And it was set to run. Yeah. And it, I looked at the little sticker and it said move dial to set the day. And it said how to set the day with the two arrow buttons. And it said move week day, move to weekday to set the temperature, you know, hit next for each time. So I look and our, for two years, our apartment has been set to at 6 a.m. to be set to not heat up or cool down the apartment, depending on where I've toggled the heat or cool, unless the temperature, if it's heat up is below, if it's cool down if it's above 76 degrees yeah that same thing for 8 a.m goes up to 82 degrees for 7 p.m goes to 78 degrees and then for 10 p.m goes to 86 degrees yeah and it's that the same for the weekend you have just described my downstairs thermostat yeah so it is now (laughs) set flat to 70 I love it. I love everything about it. Yeah, that's, I have two different thermostats in mine, and the downstairs one is the original thermostat set up with, yeah, it's got like a little flap that goes down, and yeah, yeah you set the programs. I vaguely recall flipping that down multiple times and just not knowing what any of the buttons were and not reading it. My upstairs thermostat now is much more straightforward. It is, there's no flipping anything down. It's just the box on the wall, and there's buttons. And there's four buttons, there's the arrow buttons, and then there's a button that says heat cool, 
and then there's a button that says off. <laughs> yeah, um, that's how ours was in our old apartment. And that's all it was. So I'm just two years, two years of us like sweating to death in this apartment. <laughs> does no, does that affect like your utility payments well, at all? So the, the cool function would the would obviously there's a fan going, so that must affect our electricity. I wouldn't know because it's never been cool enough in the apartment to actually have the cool function yeah. <laughs> um, because of the way it was set. But the heat, we have, a Vermont, it's Vermont Gas. It's a, the mm -hmm. natural gas company. And we have had really high bills when they said that like the last people only had like $12 a month. Ours have consistently been like 20 to $50 a month. And now I see why. I think mm -hmm. the last tenants might have set it out of spite because I don't know why else any human being moving out in September would set that as the thermostat functions unless it was to spite someone. Or unless they were very, very old people. Old people like it very hot and dry. I do not know. It's why their skin looks like that. <laughs> Seriously, they're slowly mummifying themselves. I swear to God. Should we get to the episode? Let's get to it. Okay. So get, this to the, is... get to the crime. Yes, it's my turn for a crime. Tell me your I crime. Okay, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to picture in your mind's eye. It is September 30th, 2001. And you are a 13-year-old boy. I mean, close. I was 13. <laughs> 2001? Yeah, I was 13. <laughs> All right. So you are 13 years old and you are enjoying a day on the water in Galveston Bay, which is located in Galveston, Texas. Yeah, there was a hurricane there once. Yeah. There was. Uh, so yeah, you're on this bay. It's 2001. You're 13 years old. You look out at the water and you see something uh, floating in the water. Uh-oh. Uh, Is it a log? You get a, <laughs> you get a little bit of a closer look. You probably thought it was a log at one point, but then you realize, oh no, 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 no. That is a dismembered human torso. Oh, no. Tor oh, torso is really worst. Yeah. So the police get called. And now like the scene has do. been set. Now the scene has been set and we shall get on to the story. Uh, and one of the documentaries said that Galveston locals know that anything you throw off the coast of Galveston, uh, like most things, you throw them into the ocean, they go out into the ocean. Anything you throw into Galveston comes right back into Galveston Bay. Yeah. <laughs> so if yeah. this was in fact a human torso that was dismembered and someone disposed of, uh, and they expected it to go away and decided that Galveston Bay was the place they obviously weren't a local. So that's just a little fun fact. <laughs> this is a great idea. idea. All the locals know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the police arrive and they find multiple garbage bags. All of them containing human limbs. Oh, no. There's no head in sight. So now we have a torso and we have enough limbs to make up one whole man. Mm. And there's also in one of the bags, like receipts from a local hardware store for like a bone saw and like bleach and all the other stuff you would need to like dismember and dispose of a body, as well as some personal items they guessed were from the victim that led them to believing he might have been a man named Morse Black. Uh, and the items led to an apartment in the uh, 2200 block of Avenue K and the apartment belonged to Morse Black. All right. So I know I've said this before, but if I was like somebody's publisher, like editing someone's murder mystery book that they were writing and they wrote all that, I'd be like, that's a little too on the nose. Maybe get rid of all the re damning receipts in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the police go to the apartment in question and it has very, very clearly been recently deep cleaned. It smells of bleach. Mm. It is spotless. So they lumen all the place up and boy, oh, howdy does it glow. We're talking like there's blood on the walls, blood on the floor. And they notice that it drags out of the apartment. So they follow the luminol trail and it goes to the apartment across the hall. And the landlord says that this apartment belongs to a woman by the name of Dorothy Siner. And I think this is a bit rude, but according to the landlord, she was the ugliest woman he'd ever seen. Rude. And she was a mute who only corresponds via writing on a notebook. And she prepays for the apartment ahead of time in cash, which was very weird for this area. This is kind of like the low income slummy area. So the fact that this woman is paying ahead of time in cash is, I mean, he he wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth, but it was very weird for the area. But he was going to be real judgy about it. Yes. Uh, So they get a warrant to search Dorothy's apartment and she's not there. They find more evidence that a crime had taken place. They also find, like, the landlord was clear that she lived alone, but they found, like, an appointment reminder for, like, an eye doctor or something that had a man named Robert's uh, name on it. Okay. A friend of hers or... Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, So they ran a background check on her, found out she's not from Texas. No addresses or no phone numbers are, like, Texas related. So they call her up. She has never even heard of Galveston, Texas before. She's kind of like, I'm sorry, where? (laughs) So they do some more questioning and digging and they realize that uh, the same man that's name is on the card. She says, uh, yeah, I went to school with him. I mean, he was kind of a loner, but we haven't really talked. So now they're like, okay, so what's going on? It was getting clear to the police, like at this point that like, it must be this man, like this, whoever this Robert person is there, they're doing it. So they decide to go to the appointment uh, on the appointment card and wait for this Robert fellow. And when he arrived, they arrested him on the spot for the murder of Morris Black. Now, this was on October 9th. So we're talking about nine days after the body was found. So it's a very quick work for the Galveston police. Uh, Yeah, the suspicion at this time now is that this Robert fellow was dressing as a woman, using a name from his memory bank in order to just pose as a woman pretending to be mute so that no one could tell that he had a man's voice uh and this doesn't really pertain to the crime but um they found a bunch of marijuana in his car so they charged him for both the murder and right the okay texas i was like and yeah texas early 2000s okay yeah, yeah. So the, the judge realizing this is a dangerous fellow and he's killed and dismembered a human being on top of that seems to have no qualms in disguising himself uh, since he was impersonating a mute, like a mute woman for, for months, uh, decided to set the bail at 300,000 cash or bond in order to ensure that this man stays in jail. Right? Right. That night, the man makes bail and disappears. Now, as I said- Okay, okay so he got money. Yeah, so now the, the apartment Robert was renting under the guise of a mute woman named Dorothy Siner, what, like I said, it was low income, it was kind of slummy, so it really shocked the police that this man was able to post a $300,000 bail overnight, but it obviously, you know, for the obvious reasons, it doesn't shock us. Ask me why it doesn't shock us, Ace. Why doesn't it shock us, Hattie? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because this man was millionaire real estate tycoon Robert Durst. Yes, I'm still on this motherfucker. 
You, you think I'm done with him? You think I'm done with him? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd be kind of, I'd, I'd be disappointed if you were done with him because I'd be like, but he did so much more stuff. <laughs> yeah. So this is the last big one. Moving on. So what happens is you post bail and then you do back for like an October 16th arraignment hearing, I guess. Right. I don't really know yeah. how the criminal justice system works too much. Well, the October 16th hearing came and it went and it was clear that this man skipped bail. He is now considered an official fugitive, a manhunt ensues, but this man, he has money caches all over the place. He's a multimillionaire. He has real estate all across the country. He's not afraid to use fake IDs. He's not afraid to dress like a damn woman. He uses false names. Uh, so it's as good as hopeless at this point that they will, you know, they're not, they're not going to find him, you know? Right. Uh, so <clears throat> November 30th is the, the next day to have on my notes. We're a month and a half from when he officially became a fugitive. We are two months from the day Morris Black's body was found. Robert Durst was on this day arrested in Pennsylvania. And he wasn't arrested because someone went, hey, that's Texas fugitive Robert Durst. No, no, no. He was arrested because he was caught shoplifting a sandwich in a newspaper from a grocery store. Yeah, that that's what I remember most. That's like when people say, "What?" When you hear the name Robert Durst, what do you immediately think of? I'm like that time he got arrested for shoplifting a sandwich. Yeah. Oh, so so let's uh, for the the listeners who um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna really paint this out. Multi millionaire Robert Durst, money to get anything he wants practically. Robert Durst was caught for his murderous crimes that he was wanted for in another state. Because he decided to shoplift a sandwich and a newspaper. I don't know about the the prices in Pennsylvania, but in about 2001, the price of a sandwich and a newspaper at the, like the local deli, that would have been $4, $5. Yeah, but. Multimillionaire shoplifted like $5 worth of product. But the thing about shoplifting is a lot of times you're not, okay, yes, there are people who like genuinely will like shoplift things they need to survive because of like financial hardships because we live in a capitalist hellscape. But the majority of shoplifters are doing it for the thrill of the steal. They don't need it. They have the money to pay for it. They just want to see if they can get away with it. It's the adrenaline rush. It's just, if you're already getting away with murder in Texas, why not enough adrenaline. Your- Gotta steal that sandwich. Yeah. Well, he what, was- what kind of sandwich was it? Do they say? I'm- I think one documentary I watched said like ham sandwich, but that oh. would have just been them spitballing. I don't know. I'm going to look it up. Oh, God. If it was like the sad Subway tuna salad that's not really tuna. <laughs> so it was at a grocery store. Okay. <laughs> Still could be a sad tuna salad. Okay, I found a New York Post article from December 1st, 2001, so the next day, called Lamb Sandwich Arrest, Multimillionaire Fugitive Durst, nailed for trying to steal a $5 hero. Fugitive millionaire Robert Durst, who jumped bail seven weeks ago in a grisly Texas murder, was captured in eastern Pennsylvania yesterday trying to steal a $5 sandwich. Durst, his head shaved with $500 in his pocket, was grabbed by security as he attempted to leave a Wegmans supermarket in Bath, Pennsylvania, about 85 miles west of the Big Apple. And then he stole a newspaper and a Band-Aid to cover a shaving cup on his lip. A singular Band-Aid. One singular Band-Aid. Oh, it was a Wegmans. Oh, I love Wegmans. Oh. And it, it, so it was just a hero sandwich. The fact that they call it the lamb sandwich arrest, I'm going to guess it was a ham sandwich. 
or maybe that's where the like well the when you say a hero sandwich like hero like hero sub like a sub like yes. a sub oh yes, okay because i was gonna say if it was like a hero like a like a like g-y-r-o like that kind of hero sometimes so that, that's, those a, that's are a hero usually, yeah i've heard it pronounced like 18 different ways and i don't know which one is right um all right anyways so he, he stole a fucking sandwich Five singular dollars. band-aid did he like open the box like does he need the one i have no idea and he like he could have just like opened it and like put it on and then been like no this was on when i walked in like yeah so anyways though he sits in jail for a little over a year after this so he's he sat in jail no more bail for you yeah his his trial yeah exactly his trial started in 2003 during the trial robert admitted to dismembering morris black he said that he used a paring knife Two different types of saws, and one source said it was a bone saw okay, and that's... an axe to do the job. Yes, an axe and a bone saw. That's what you use to dismember joints. A paring knife? I don't know. Maybe to flay the skin. Okay, that yeah, that would make sense. Like, yeah. I'm gonna dismember this these joint these articulated joints. Yeah. It's a paring knife. Should yeah. do it. <laughs> so this was his side of the story as told by the defense. On September 28th, according to Robert Durst and his legal team, Robert came home to find Morris, who had a key to the apartment. Uh, on a side, he was like the handyman of the, of the boarding house apartment building. Right. So he came home to find Morris sitting in his living room on his couch watching TV. And Durst said that Morris was visibly angry with him and an altercation ensued. During this fight, Durst said that Black grabbed Durst's personal 22 millimeter pistol from its hiding spot. And the two struggled with the weapon, at which time Black was shot in the face. At this point, I really, okay, so this part, I'm going to be really careful with my wording. As we've already had to say an apology in the past, so please, Ace, let me know if my verbiage is problematic, all right? So Daguerrean held two mock trials. Uh, During these two mock trials, his team had extreme difficulty communicating with Durst, so they hired psychiatrist Dr. Milton Altshuler, who spent over 70 hours examining Durst before diagnosing him with Asperger's. I know it's not the term used nowadays due to its links to Nazi eugenicists who created the term, Uh, but in 2003, it was called Asperger's and staying true to the story, that was his official diagnosis. Okay. His lawyers went, oh, we can use this diagnosis to our advantage. Of course they did. Let's add it to our strategy. And they argued that his Asperger's explained his odd behavior on top of self-defense. They just threw the Asperger's um, defense in there. I explains the odd behavior. Technically, That's, yes. I mean, it, not it, the it, murder, though. Yeah. Well, here, here's the here's the kicker that I didn't mention. They never recovered Morris Black's head. I think I mentioned they couldn't find his head. They never right. found his head. Oh, no. uh, so forensics was never able to figure out the cause of death. He said that he that it was an accidental or a self-defense gunshot to the face during an altercation. There was never any forensic test to corroborate it. So it was literally Durst's word against speculation from the prosecution. Uh, and due to this lack of evidence, on November 11th, 2003, Durst was acquitted all charges related to the murder of Morris Black. A year later, a plea bargain was struck for the rest of the charges. And December 21st, 2004, 
Durst pled guilty to bail jumping and evidence tampering. Evidence tampering? Evidence tampering was dismembering and disposing of the body. I think it, he, they pled down from like desecration of a corpse to evidence tampering. If you want to rant, you may, before I continue. Evidence tampering implies like you smudged some fingerprints or you like went in and made it so that the murder weapon now is like inadmissible because you've compromised the integrity of the fingerprints or the whatever the fuck. He dismembered yeah. a body. He went in and was like, choppity choppity, this is some garbage bags and fling it in the bay. And he didn't say like, he was like, yeah, I did that. I did that to the body. Where's the head? I'm not telling. Yeah, exactly. Like, my dude. What? Yeah. So for dismembering a body, for skipping bail, and being a fugitive for, what was it, seven weeks was what that yeah. New York Post article said. Um, because of that, because it was a plea deal, he was only sentenced to five years in prison with the possibility of being paroled and was credited for time served, which means he only had to serve like somewhere around three years. This was December 21st, 2004. And he was paroled that July. So he saw like two and a half years in prison. I was well into high school at that point. I was like, I graduated high school in 2006. Like I was, yeah. I was entering high school at that point. (laughs) (laughs) So part of the terms of his parole was he needed to stay near his home. It was essentially like a modified house arrest uh, and he needed permission Uh, from like Department of Corrections in order to travel and that's even traveling like within the county like they really wanted him to be like within a radius of his home I think like the supermarket might have been allowed but no traveling but for some reason in December of 2005 he decided that he was going to make a trip to the apartment complex where Black was killed and then he went to the local shopping mall he decided to do shopping and it wasn't anywhere near his home so he consider, it was considered an authorized trip. There was no technicality about it. He was breaking the terms of his parole. Coincidentally, the very judge who presided over his case, and her name is Susan Chris, uh, was at that mall and ran into him. So he was promptly sent back to jail. Oh, boy. <laughs> but he was only sent back to prison for like three months. He was released in Mar- March 1st of 2006. Uh... A few of the sources I watched, including the Investigation Discovery documentary, uh, stated this theory that Morris Black and his brother were allegedly um, hired to help dispose of a body in the early 80s for a wealthy New York man. Uh And one of these point blank said, Morris Black's brother's widow told us that he confided in her that Robert Durst paid him to dispose of Kathy McCormick. Uh-huh. If you go by that and you and you believe that and you decide to run with that theory, the speculation is that after after Kathy McCormick's case was reopened in 1999, after Susan Berman said she was ready to talk to investigators in 2000, Robert panicked. We already talked about that in the last episode and mm-hmm. he started cleaning up loose ends. That's why he murdered Susan and that would explain why he then murdered Morris Black. Because he then went after his accomplices. Black's brother was deceased at this point. He died in the 90s. But that would just leave Morris. So the theory states that he posed as a woman 
pulling a name out of his memory bank, and he moved in right across the hall from Black in order to get close enough to kill him when the opportunity arose. However, this theory makes me uncomfy for this pure reason of both men who are alleged to be accomplices. I couldn't find a reliable source other than like a documentary and they're both deceased so they cannot advocate for themselves in this so i'm gonna that's just satisfying like ah i connect the red string on my board of conspiracy yes so it's very satisfying with that but i am gonna move on i want to talk about something else okay so here's the thing almost every source i found stated that experts including susan chris the the judge who was interviewed in 2015 right They all believe that the dismemberment of Black was so precise, so clean, and so meticulously done that it could not have been his first time disposing of a body. And when Susan Berman's case became open and all this evidence started recoming into light, police in various states, as well as the FBI, started to connect some dots. I'm now going to list a few cold cases that police have tried linking him to, okay? Okay. First off, would it be a Hattie story if I didn't link this back to Vermont somehow? Link it back, link it back. Okay, so the first, the reason I first started talking about this motherfucker was because I was going to try to do, for my bonus episode, it wasn't going to be the CVS thing, I was going to try to do something a little more bummery, as is my MO apparently. Um, So this is a missing person that I looked into. So... After Berman was killed, the Vermont State Police began looking at the unsolved disappearance of 18-year-old Lynn Schultz from Middlebury, Vermont. Oh. So okay. according to both the Doe Network and the Charlie Project, on December 10th, 1971, Lynn left her morning studying. She talked to her roommate. She was talking about her, I think it was like her 1 p.m. exam. She went for a walk. She went to the local health food store that was called All the Good Things. She was witnessed standing outside the store eating dried prunes that she bought. And then she never made it to her exam and she was never seen again. Where does just a, where does um, a health food store in Middlebury ring a bell? Isn't that where, when he uh, first married his wife, he was like, we're going to go open a health food store in Vermont. And then his family was like, no, 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 you're too rich for that. Come home and work a family business. But in December of 1971, he told Kathy, let's move to Vermont. I'm opening a health food store. And he called it All the Good Things. It was in Middlebury, Vermont. So that store was owned and operated by Robert Durst at the time of her disappearance. And it was the last place she was ever seen. What a coincidence. Yeah. So around the same time that the Vermont State Police began looking at the the links between Durst and Schnaltz, the police in California we're trying to link him to two disappearances from 1997. One of Karen Mitchell in Eureka, California. She was 16 years old and 18 year old Kristen Mataferi in San Francisco, California. Okay. So I couldn't really find much information on, on Kristen, but I found a lot more information on Karen. Credit card records can place Durst in Eureka the day Karen Mitchell went missing. On top of that, Uh Karen Mitchell, she volunteered at a homeless shelter and she helped work at her aunt's store. And um, not only was for some reason multimillionaire Robert Durst a frequent person at this homeless shelter, 
but it was reported the leading up to the days that she went missing that a man dressed in women's clothing and acting a little weird kept visiting the store that Karen Mitchell worked at that her aunt owned. Again, what a coincidence. Yeah. In 2012, the FBI created an informal task force to work with investigators in jurisdictions where Durst was known to have lived in the past, including, but not limited to, New York, New Jersey, California, and Vermont. And they were trying to work on these unsolved cases and try to connect him to disappearances and murders in those areas. A Texas private investigator named Bobby Bacha, B-A-C-H-A, uh, also traced Durst operating under stolen identities in the following. Texas, Florida, Massachusetts, we already said New Jersey, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Virginia. All right. So the FBI, like I said, they created this informal task force. One of the crimes that they were, or series of crimes that they were trying to connect him with that ultimately they could not get solid evidence, but for a while he was a at least unofficial suspect in was the Long Island serial murderers, also known as the Craigslist Ripper. Oh. In case uh, any listeners don't have the oh yeah moment Ace just did, those were the murders that were happening from like 2010 to like almost into 2020, like almost a 10 year period of time uh, in which uh, sex workers were who advertised on Craigslist would meet up with a client and then their dismembered body would be found disposed of somewhere in Long Island. That's like, that's the reason why like Craigslist changed its whole setup so that you can't really, or it's very, it's really difficult to advertise for sex work on it now. Yeah. Like that's the reason why. Yeah. And for, they couldn't, they couldn't connect him to it, but they were looking at him for it yeah. at one point. So my sources were obviously Wikipedia. <laughs> Uh, the CBS News uh, had a great timeline. It was called Inside the Robert Durst Case. KYM Kemp's, uh, they did an article called No One Vanishes Into Thin Air, and that discussed his connection with Karen Mitchell. Uh, I obviously went to the Doe Network and the Charlie Project. Uh, there was a couple documentaries. One was called Trail of Blood. One, it was, it was on YouTube, so I don't know the actual name of it, but it was an investigation discovery one. Uh, I obviously used Power, Privilege, and Justice, uh, season four, episode nine, uh, Billionaire on the Run, that was focusing on Morris Black and trying to tie it into the, uh, the other cases. Um, I used an ABC News article, Why Robert Durst Killed His Neighbor, in his own words. The New York Daily News' article, Robert Durst Laughs When Grilled Over Claims He Drank a Fifth of Jack Daniels Dismembered Morris Black with Axe and Bosaw. Because uh, during Berman's trial, they did ask him about Morris Black, and he he laughed about it on the stand. Uh, of course yeah. he did. <laughs> but yeah, so I am finally done with this fucker. Wow. <laughs> I mean, excellent job. That was... Can you imagine if I had originally only done this in one episode? I've listened to other podcasts do him all in one episode and yeah those episodes are like well here's our two-hour episode as one person is talking about Robert Durst for an hour and a half and then the other people are like and here's my two-minute crime yeah <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah well yeah that's a uh, current serial killer Robert Durst where can people find us 
Uh, if they have questions, comments, concerns, stories, sweet nothings, they want to type creepily as if whispering into our ear, they can email us at truly fabulously monstrous, no spaces, no dots, no dashes, no nothing at gmail.com. And if they want to find us on social media, we have an Instagram at truly fabulously monstrous. Uh, we have a Twitter at TFAB Monsterpod. So join us next time when I tell a spook. A spooky. A, a spooky. And we will be there. We hope you will too. Bye. Bye.